It's a joy to be here. I do love church history, and I make no apology <laughs> for that. And I used to always tell people, I taught in the, the government school. That's why I call it the public school. I call it the government school. I taught in the public government school for many years, and every time we would have a parent meeting, I would say right away, okay, let's get this out of the way. So we'll do this here. We'll do this here. How many of you in school didn't really, for whatever reason, didn't find history to be your favorite class? Let's go ahead and... And I, was, I will say to you what I said to those parents. It's my fault because you did not have me for a teacher. Because <laughs> if you had... Maybe if you had me, you would have liked it a little more. Okay, this is, we'll start with the audience participation portion of the program. Uh, join in when you are able. Ready? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste. Glory divine. This is my story. Praising my Savior. Since, maybe that high. That was my favorite song. This is my story. This is my song. But today, the context is blessed assurance, because that is our topic, is the Reformers' teaching on assurance. Because one of the first questions you can imagine is, can a person even have assurance? So how would you find, or rather define, assurance when it comes to a person's salvation? It's a very, obviously, a very important question, because to, I, perhaps to understand if you have assurance, the first question is, well, what is your definition of assurance? Because what if you have assurance, but your definition is off? You may not even know that you have assurance. Because I'm going to guess that, and there's, I'm really bad at math, so I'm going to guess there's maybe 40 of us here right now. Um, there may be some of us in this room who struggle with assurance. So, my, my initial goal is not primarily to help you with that, which may sound like a, almost a cold or harsh thing to, to say, but my, my task is to simply examine the reformers' study of it and their views of it and their teaching of it. And my prayer has been that the Holy Spirit will take that and apply it to each of us individually as we need. Because while I might be a teacher, I am definitely not the Holy Spirit. And I have learned years ago as a preacher, pastor, teacher, my job is to convict no one of anything. My job is to say, thus saith the Lord. And I know this church wants that. You don't want me to try to convince you and beat into your head what you should think. My job is to say, what does the Lord tell us? Here's a quote. The greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance. The greatest of all Protestant heresies, of all the many heresies that Protestants have, according to the Roman Catholic Church, the greatest heresy is the idea that you can have assurance. Were you aware that that's one of your greatest heresies? It's taught, and it's taught firmly and repeatedly and constantly by the Roman Catholic Church. But we know 1 John 5.13 tells us, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. 
that's one of many places we could turn, but it's, it's literally black and white right there. So what are your thoughts on this statement? A Christian is assured of their salvation when they are confident God has forgiven their sins through Christ's death and resurrection. A Christian is assured of their salvation when they're confident God has forgiven their sins through Christ. Again, our goal this morning is to look at the theology of the Reformers when it comes to assurance. Perhaps the greatest debate at that time period was what is required to be assured of salvation. Not just what is required for salvation, but what is required for the assurance of salvation. Do we need dreams, visions? Do we need visitations from angels to say to you, be at rest, my child. You can be assured that you're saved. This is a big issue that they struggled with. The next question or the next issue was, do we need the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church and the authority of the Roman Catholic Church to gain assurance? So as we look back, and this is something that teachers shouldn't do, so I'll go ahead and tell you because I'm a little unorthodox in some things. Um, I've got, I told my wife, I said, you think it's bad that I have 16 pages of notes? She said, they're in trouble. <laughs> I said, well, I'll, uh... so I was in there this morning. It's good when the teacher is trying to weed out at the last minute, but when you love history, how do you cut out when everything is the good part? As one preacher said, you missed a really good place for an amen right there. But anyway, so two questions of the reformers. Were they conscious of what they were doing in terms of establishing, creating, recreating, rediscovering a position on assurance? Were they consciously thinking, this is new or this is I would say yes kind of yes kind of as we know they only rediscovered right there's a re in front of formers a re in front of reformation for a reason as they grew in their understanding as they matured in their faith and understanding of the Bible they came to realize we're not discovering anything we are simply rediscovering, but for them, in a sense, it was discovering, because if you've not discovered it before for yourself, it is a discovery. But it isn't new in Scripture. It isn't new for Christians who know Scripture at that time. But to them, can you imagine? Another reason to study history so you can imagine better. Could you imagine them opening the Scriptures and now with the Holy Spirit illuminating. And they're, they're thinking, look at what we've been missing. All this time, we were in the church, the Roman Catholic Church, and we knew little to none of this. So in, in some ways, it was a new idea, but certainly it was new to the common people, and it was new to the pulpit. It was new to the pulpit, as we see in Luther's writings and so many other reformers. 
Question two, why were so many intent on searching for and teaching on assurance? Why was that their lifeline every single day when they get up is they have to study and learn and teach on assurance? One word, Rome. The Roman Catholic Church. Our opening quote about the greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance comes from a Roman Catholic Cardinal, Robert Bellarmine, who lived. He was a little bit after Luther. He was like 1542. He was born. So, you know, 25, 27 years after Luther nailed the, the theses, died 1621. So that's his context. As you may know, and don't let yourself forget this. Many reformers, almost most of the reformers, were actually former Roman Catholic priests. They knew exactly what the church was doing. And they knew why the church was doing what they were doing. They knew that the church was intentionally keeping the people captive, keeping the people ignorant. This is something we we know this. The church was intent on controlling its members primarily through the sacraments. If you individually had not been following teachings, you don't get the sacraments. And from birth, you're taught no sacrament equals hell. No question about it. If an entire diocese, region, had not been rightly following the Pope, they would shut down the sacraments for an entire, what's that, a county. Lono County does not get the sac. No church, no individual in Lono County, White County, Pulaski County, you do not get the sacraments until the Pope or the local cardinal says, okay, you've repented, and now you can receive the sacraments. Again, they were taught, no sacraments equal, you will definitely go to hell. So as they studied the scripture, these men who, again, mainly were Roman Catholic priests, as they studied scripture, and like Luther, if you're familiar with his story, and if you're not, shame on you, um, they're studying scripture for the first time. Luther had been a priest for years. Luther had been teaching through scripture at a seminary when he realized, I'm not even a Christian myself. So when these men start by God's grace to study, it lit a fire in them and praise God for that. As they did that, God's spirit led them to insist on a few of the following things here. Number one, because salvation was accomplished by God's work alone, believers could know for sure they were saved. Next, Christ's life Death and resurrection secured the full salvation of all of his people. Again, Christ-centered. Next, instead of striving to add works to be saved, believers receive and rest. And I want to say this to you and to myself today. Christ I'm sorry, instead of striving to add works, believers receive and rest upon Christ's finished work. Nothing you need to do, nothing you can do. Rest today in Christ's 
finished work for your salvation. And believers are united to Christ and receive all his benefits by the work of the Spirit. Christ did all the work. The Spirit imputes that to the believer. He did all the work. We can't even then go grab it and impute it to ourselves. Completely Trinitarian, completely of the Lord. Rome taught that professing believers could never be certain of their salvation. Rome taught that professing believers can never be sure. That's, I almost did it. I have, a, I have two gifts as a speaker. One is I love to jump to the end because I know where I'm going. I'm not going to do that <laughs> for a minute. And because some of you are doing math, my second gift is I am the king of really bad analogies. And thankfully in Sunday school, there's, I have no analogies, so you're safe from that as well. Here we go. I don't think <laughs> I have any. So for this reason, believers needed to complete works. Believers were chained to the Roman Catholic Church and its doctrine. Believers were chained to whatever the local priest, cardinal, bishop, or ultimately the pope said. They must complete works. They must observe the sacraments to gain any hope of final salvation. They must. The church in Rome taught that even, even the most dedicated believers could not know for sure they were saved. It's true today in many cults. Some who call themselves Christians. It's true, I don't know if you know this, Muslims have no assurance of salvation. Roman Catholics, as we just saw, have no assurance of salvation. The most dedicated person could never be assured of salvation. So let's just pause here for a minute and define that word assurance. One well-known Bible teacher says, assurance is the realization that one possesses eternal life. It's a pretty simple, basic, good definition. It's the assurance I have the realization I possess eternal life. Or said in another way, the belief and confidence a Christian has that God has forgiven their sins through Christ's death and resurrection. I feel the need to preach on that. I'm not here to preach on this topic. I'm here to teach what the Reformers taught on the topic. There's a man I've never heard of before until I started doing the research, Sir William Hamilton, Back, he's a little bit after Luther as well. He said, assurance is special faith that God is propitious to me, that my sins are forgiven. And now Hamilton is going to take us into the deeper end of the pool where we're going already. Get this. Now, again, let me just pause and say this. We are here this morning to look at what the reformers believed and taught. Yes. Now, what we're not going to do, maybe a little, is we're not going to decide today, this is a bad thing, Pastor. I was going to say, we're not going to decide if we agree or disagree with some things, but we're just here to say what they taught. And, and what we'll see is some of these men, because this is new to them, you might read their works and go, that's, I don't think that's quite accurate. But again, they're writing in the early days of these discoveries. 
So many of these men do go on to change their official opinion after more prayer and scripture. I mean, imagine if you wrote your own theology as a Christian the first month you were saved. It would probably be different than if you rewrote it in your 30th year. I mean, Calvin's Institutes, they were in different editions. And some of the first ones don't completely match the later ones. So here's what Hamilton said, and this is, I find this to be true in many of, the, many of the reformers. Assurance was universally held in the Protestant committees, communities, sorry, to be the criterion and condition of a true or saving faith. Translation, he is saying, and, and I found this to be true, many early reformers, and we'll get to some, would say, did say, if you are not assured of your salvation, then you simply are not saved. We could probably uh, meet afterwards to have a discussion over here, couldn't we? Are we all to believe, well, if you're not assured, that means you're not saved. That's what some of the early writers were saying. Now, let's look quickly, which means nothing. <laughs> the difference between the medieval Roman Catholics and the Reformers. Just a couple of differences before we go into, I'm going to go into to some specific men that we know, Luther, Calvin, and some other guys. The Romanists, the Roman Catholic Church, rejected the doctrine of assurance partly because they believed assurance would lead to lawless and licentious behavior. If you tell someone they can know for sure that they can know, they can just say, well, I know I'm saved, and as we know, I'll live however I want. Someone who knows his salvation is secure would have no incentive to obey God. After all, God gave us the sacraments to provide visible assurances that he is invisibly providing us with grace. You can see someone take the Eucharist. You can see someone get married. You can see someone receive orders as a priest. That's the visible sacrament. But through doing that, God then gives them invisible grace to live by. So besides, that's, that's the Roman Catholic teaching at the time, besides knowing we're saved, what does assurance do for believers? The Reformers taught that knowing your salvation is secure, you have peace with God. That lends to strength and cheerfulness, cheerfully to obey. Catholics, if you know you're saved, you will live licentiousness. Reformers, if you know you're saved, you will obey with peace and joy. Believers obey God not out of fear or desperation, but out of gratitude and because of the Spirit's continued work in their lives. Now, some thoughts of a few of the reformers. Let's start with Luther, of course. Luther believed assurance of salvation is tied to Christ and our unbreakable union with him. You will see this through a few of the, guy, of the reformers. 
if you have unbreakable forgiveness, unbreakable union with Christ, you must, you, you, can, you must never doubt salvation if you know that your union with Christ is unbreakable. Luther cites, which is nothing new, um, one of my favorite verses, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now, jump in, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. No condemnation. Ephesians 3.1. These are just two of the verses of many that Luther hammered on. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. As a Christian, just take those two, meditate, think, just let those warm your soul. He has, past tense, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Luther taught, Luther believed that Jesus Christ suffered and made satisfaction on our behalf. He was raised from the dead and has unified us to himself through faith in his death and resurrection. And again, who did all that work? Christ did. 2 Corinthians 5.21, right? He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Who did that work? On whose behalf was it done? This is, according to Luther, and he'll be happy to know I agree with him, uh, this is just evidence. This is just assurance. It's confidence. Luther declares, he, and this is Luther, he who hath not assurance spews out faith. He's one of those guys leaning toward, if you don't have assurance, you have an issue. Now, when he says with faith, he means salvation. Here's a story about Luther. Uh, 1530, he writes a letter to a friend of his, uh, Jerome, Jerome Weller. Weller had begun to doubt his own salvation. Now, you guys know Luther, not timid, not meek. He was Luther. So, of course, here's a letter he writes to his friend who, it says here, his friend became overwhelmed by the fear of damnation and hell. So to assure, to provide comfort, Luther wrote, when the devil throws our sins up to us and declares we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my place. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. I don't care what the devil says, because he's right to begin with. I do deserve all that. But I know the one. He continues, but now, since God has taken my salvation out of my hands, 
Three of you, you're, you're my, I'm going to repeat that. But now, since God has taken my salvation out of my hands into his, making it depend on his choice and not mine, and has promised to save me, not by my works or exertion, but by his grace and mercy, I am assured and certain both that he is faithful and will not lie to me, and also that he is too great and powerful for any demons or any adversaries to be able to break him or to snatch me from him. Hallelujah. I, I okay, let's just keep going. I'm, I'm passing, I'm, I'm moving on forward. Calvin. What Calvin says, how can a man who presumably knows himself to be a sinner worthy of eternal damnation determine whether or not he has the good fortune to be one of God's elect? How can a man who presumably knows himself to be a sinner worthy of damnation determine whether or not he has good fortune? A better way to say that is how can a man who knows himself worthy of damnation not be one of God's elect? Your average pagan, non-believer, non-Christian doesn't walk around going, you know what, I'm a pretty wretched person. You know, I'm fully deserving of God's eternal wrath. Calvin is saying, if you know that, that is a gift of the Holy Spirit. That could be evidence, should be evidence, according to Calvin, that one is saved. And for Calvin, it was not possible to be saved without knowing it. You cannot be saved and not know it, says Calvin. Here's a quote. He, is, he only is a true believer who firmly persuaded that God is reconciled and is a kind father to him and with undoubting confidence anticipates salvation. None hope well in the Lord save those who confidently glory in being the heirs of the heavenly kingdom. This pause is to let you think about that. And if you think about that, you will think, I think I'm starting to love church history. That was, that was the intention of that pause. <laughs> I'm going to give you a, a, a preacher's secret, at least for, for myself. I can't speak for Pastor Rob, but sometimes, no, often, not sometimes. I often put notes to myself that you never see or hear in my sermon. I didn't put one here, but it would have been a good place to say, let them think about that. <laughs> Calvin held to what? This is, this is pretty exciting, pretty interesting. Calvin held, held to what might be called a doctrine of double justification. Not double. Did, did somebody think, did you think you, I was going to predestination? Or Yeah, double 
justification. God accepts our persons as righteous in his sight. That's a number one. Because of the righteousness of Christ. But he goes further and accepts our works also on the basis of Christ. We are righteous because of Christ, and our works are acceptable to God because of Christ. Double justification, this person calls that. Ten, what time am I? Amen. Amen. (laughs) I may have have to back up in a minute to go back to Luther. John Knox. I I just picked some of the, there's some guys I have skipped. Um, John Knox from Scotland. Knox was influenced by Luther Calvin. He spent time in Geneva under Calvin's teaching. Again, you, you have to, you just have to go read some John Knox. Knox especially focused on the truth of Sovereign predestination for a lot of these men. Just the truth and the understanding of predestination has to give assurance. Again, this is is pausing for think time. It has to, according to these guys. He taught that God's eternal election of his people in Christ Jesus is the doctrine on which the believer's personal assurance of salvation is founded. Who does the choosing? Just, just, just rehearse that, pray through that, think through that. Here's a, a, a quote by Knox. There is no way more proper to build and establish faith than when we hear and undoubtedly do believe that our election consists not in ourselves, but in the eternal and unchangeable good pleasure of God. Glorious, glorious. Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli, leader of the Swiss Reformation. We discussed him a little bit out there under the canopy a couple, three years ago. Regarding the Roman Catholic Church, I'm going to go at the, start at the end and go backwards a little bit because, of course, again, all these guys are Roman Catholic priests. He said, it is futile to use words like, I absolve you or I assure you of the remission of sins. The popish inventions concerning this matter are all deceits and fables. So he starts here by saying, you cannot trust in the Roman Catholic Church to say you are absolved. That is not where anybody is going to find true assurance. Good works make us more and more certain of our salvation, not as causes of our salvation, but as testimonies and effects of the cause. And that is our faith. I've got a... Big, long section here that says, read this only if you have time. <laughs> okay, we're going to do it. This is, this is, this is uh, Zwingli. Since good works are for us, sure testimonies of our faith, 
it follows that they also make us certain of our eternal election. So then when Satan puts us, when Satan puts us in doubt about our election, it is necessary to first go and search for the decision of the eternal plan of God. His majesty would I may have misspoke. I'm going to read the whole thing again. I think I missaid something here. When Satan puts us in doubt about our election, it is not necessary to first go and search for the decision of the eternal plan of God. His majesty would dazzle us. But, on the contrary, it is necessary to begin with the sanctification which one experiences in oneself and to climb higher from there. Since our sanctification from which proceeds good works is a sure effect of faith or rather of Jesus Christ is necessarily called and elected by God to salvation. And here's a big debate among many of the reformers How much time should the Christian spend examining himself to determine? I think I'm supposed to have time at the end for questions. So what I did, because I'm a good teacher, is I anticipated as many questions as I could and tried to answer them here so that when it gets to the end, you won't have many but, I, but, but here we can, we can have a discussion right now rather than wait to the end. What are your thoughts on telling someone, you know, just, just examine your works to see if you're saved? How, how would you continue or enter that conversation? Well, there's a danger in someone putting their hope in their works and that being the basis for their salvation rather than the promises of God. He said, I think it's a good place to start is look at your, but you, that cannot be the ultimate uh, decision maker. It's just my works. Thank you. 
It's, uh, I was going to mention James, so I'm very glad that you did, which is, as some, some of you would know, it was, I would say it could be ironic or interesting that we're coupling Luther with James, because if you don't know James, or rather Luther did not really uh, consider James perhaps to be uh, fully scripture. He called a straw man at one point. But thank you very much for those. But There, there will be works, but again, Roman Catholic, I tell people all the time, you will not have nicer neighbors with greener grass than a Mormon. Muslims can be the nicest people. So it, it's, it's not completely works, but there will be works. And again, it's, it's glory to God. It's based on, on, we go back to the very beginning about the, the joy that I get from these, not the drudgery of having to produce so that I can even convince myself, let alone my neighbors. So, so thank you for sharing that right there. And I love this part here, and this will be the end of Zwingli. We'll go on to some confessions. He says, you will know this partly from the spirit of adoption, who inwardly cries, Abba, Father, and partly from the power and efficacy of that same spirit within you. If, that is, you experience and also demonstrate in reality that sin Though it dwells in you, does not reign in you. So the spirit, if you have the spirit, if your spirit bears witness, if you can cry, Abba, Father, that is an, an indication as well. So uh, we're going to end, which doesn't mean we're close, but we're going to end with two uh, Reformation confessions. One's the Canons of Dort, where you may know you get the supposed tulip from, and then the Westminster Catechism, um, actually the Westminster Confession of Faith, not the Catechism itself, um, to see what they say about the assurance of salvation. Again, the cans of Dort were from a city, Dortrecht, in Netherlands. You may know that after uh, Calvin died, the Armenians got together to just blast his theology, and they wrote, and this is what, again, church history is very important, they wrote five points of just blasting Calvinism. So people who believed, held to the doctrines of grace, they didn't worship Calvin, they just loved the word of God. They met together and decided we're just going to answer each of those. That's why there just happens to be five, and they just happen to be the T-U-L-I-P, but it was a response to the, um, it's the remonstrance is what it was called. The Armenians wrote a doc, doc, document called The Remonstrance. So they met 1618, 1619, and the purpose was to clarify how believers even enter salvation with Christ. That was their purpose, which is, again, T-U-L-I-P. If you have a question about that, ask um, Dale. <laughs> Pick someone, ask Dale. Um, now, there's five main parts. It's the fifth part. It's, it's called the fifth main, they have the first main point of doctrine, do, 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 all the way down to the fifth it's called the fifth main point of doctrine, and the title of it is called The Perseverance of the Saints. I'm going to read just some headings of some articles, just the heading, and then I'm going to dig deep, uh, dive rather into a couple of them. Article one under The Perseverance of the Saints is the regenerate are not entirely free from sin. We understand that. Now, article three says God's preservation of the converted. 
So God preserves. Article 9, the assurance of this preservation. And this is a very short summary of this. Concerning this preservation of those chosen to salvation and concerning the perseverance of true believers in faith, they firmly believe that they are and always will remain true and living members of the church and that they have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's what Dort says on the assurance of salvation. Those who are chosen firmly believe they have eternal life. Article 10 is called the ground of this assurance. And it says this, faith in the promises of God, which are very plentifully revealed in the word of our comfort from the testimony of the Holy Spirit, testifying with our spirit that we are children of God and heirs. That's Romans 8. And finally, from a serious and holy pursuit of a clear conscience and of good works. Translation. Dort. Main point five, article 10 says the spirit testifies to your spirit. You also have a holy pursuit of a clear conscience and you do have good works. So those are the three main things that Dort is saying right there. Again, heavy reliance on the testimony of the spirit. And article 14, God's use of means in perseverance. This one I think is so important because God gives us the church. God gives us brothers and sisters in Christ. Those are God's means, his method, his, his, his way of pouring grace into our lives. Which um, on, the, on the threat or fear of me welling up again, I will explain to you why I welled up to begin with. This church is a beautiful means of God's grace. We were only here three years maybe, but we constantly, my wife and I, we constantly still thank God for this church. We love your pastor and his wife. We love you guys. God used you as a wonderful, powerful, and lasting means of grace. So I want to say, if I didn't say it earlier, please do not take what God is doing here for granted. Do not. Do not assume that while this church is not perfect because we're made up of human beings, do not assume that there are similar churches all over the place. Oh, there's not. God, I know Pastor Rob would agree, God has done the work. God is doing the work. God is using Pastor Rob. He's using Brother Carl. He's using the elders and deacons. He's using each of you. Don't. Take it for granted. Do not. Now, God's use of means in perseverance. Dort says, just as it has pleased God to begin this work of grace in us, 
by the proclamation of the gospel. That's where he begins the work. Also, God preserves, continues, and completes this work by the hearing and the reading of the gospel. That's a means of grace. By meditation on it, by its exhortations, the word of God's exhortations, threats, and promises, and also by the, this is what they said back at Dort, the use of the sacraments. So a summary of Dort. I have three points here. Summary of, of Dort. Assurance comes from faith in the promises of God. Assurance comes from the testimony of the Holy Spirit testifying to our spirits that we are children of God. Assurance comes from a serious and holy pursuit of a, as we read, of a clear conscience and of good works. Assurance comes from faith in the promises, testimony of the Spirit, and a pursuit of a clear conscience and good works. So let me ask you, do you pursue a clear conscience between, God, between you and God and you and other people? Is your desire to have a, a, a clear, clean conscience with all other believers? I would say with all people. Is that, is that, is that your heart's desire? And then Dort continues saying, if losing one's salvation is the issue... We who have been converted could not remain in grace left to our own resources. That's the bad news. The good news, God is faithful to powerfully preserve his elect to the end. We couldn't keep it. He will not lose it. He cannot lose it based on his own word, his own promises. Westminster Confession of Faith. Again, this is written a hundred years after Luther's time, but it's still considered to be at the tail end of the Reformation, of course. So what is a Westminster? I'm, I'm assuming we probably heard of the Westminster Confession of Faith. They have a, chapter 18. Chapter 18 is the assurance of grace and salvation. Summary of this. Assurance is a true hope and a certainty of salvation for those who truly believe and love Jesus and who seek to live a life pleasing to him. Assurance is a true hope and certainty of salvation for those who truly believe and love Jesus. Now here's one point. Although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hope and carnal presumption, yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. However, Westminster says, its certainty 
is possible for those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus, love him in sincerity, and endeavor to walk in a good conscience. One writer says this about Westminster's assurance. The infallible assurance of faith is founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation and the inward evidence of those graces and the testimony of the spirit of adoption. So for Westminster, how can you be assured promises of God based on salvation, inward evidence that the graces of God are active in your life and the testimony of the spirit of adoption. This should encourage us. It should comfort us. Let me read just a few verses and I will trust the Holy Spirit will work in each of our lives as he will. 2 Peter 4, 1, I'm sorry, 2 Peter 1, 4 through 11 urges us to call, to make our calling and election sure. We know this verse, don't we? And you know what? I learned years ago in life and in seminary, the most familiar verses are the most dangerous verses. Because they're so familiar, we may not actually think on them. Meditate. Let the Spirit work. Oh, I know that. Let the Spirit work on that. 2 Peter 1, 4 through 11. I did not bring my preaching Bible. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life, verse 4, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's 2 Peter 1, 4 through 11. 1 John 2, 3 testifies that we know we belong to God if we keep His commandments. If we keep His commandments. Let me end with a quote from the Confession of Faith, 18.4. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation shaken, 
diminished and intermitted as by negligence in preserving of it, by falling into some special sin, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Yet they, yet are they never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived. If you find yourself doubting your salvation, run to Christ. Run. Run to Christ. And I would encourage you by saying, if you have that desire to run to Christ, that can be one indication that you are His. Because you want Him. And you want to run to Him because you know He is the source. The Bible says, don't trust yourself or your works completely for assurance of salvation. What is Romans 3? A big long list of the sin, the sinner that we are. We can all convince ourselves. And as I said, when you are tempted to doubt your salvation, doubt your assurance, turn to Christ. Trust that you have been united with him already. Trust that you have been united with him. I'm going to take the liberty to say, I'm going to close in prayer. It's 13 after. Thank you so much for your attention. Let's pray. Father, what a good, good father you are. We thank you for your son. It is his work, by his work and his work alone that we are saved, that we have any hope. And so we rejoice and we sing out what a wonderful Savior. We thank you, God, that you give us the Holy Spirit to bind our hearts to yours, to give us the assurance. Thank you, Father, that your Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are children. Oh, God, how amazing. How can it be? I pray the few things I said today that you would take them for your purposes, encourage, bless, even change people for your glory. May we leave this time encouraged. And God, I do thank you for the sweet fellowship in this local congregation. Truly a sign of the Spirit's work. So we thank you for that. We rejoice in our King Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.